And while you're opening up to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, you're not going to see a lot of screen. In fact, you won't see any slides um, during this message. Because I'm going to really speak, not really conversationally, but I'm going to speak very much with, I hope, your full attention on the Word of God. I'm just going to keep directing you to the Word of God. And we're going to be in a few different places. We're going to start, though, um, in Ephesians chapter 4. Actually, we're going to leave there really quickly, but you won't have to turn there. But let me just start with this. The church is a family. And what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, six weeks, is that we're going to be looking at how the church should function. And interestingly, every one of these messages has direct implications on how our nuclear families ought to function. So what we're going to be looking at that we need to master in our church family equally needs to be mastered in our nuclear families. And just like our families at home, we tend to hurt each other in the church, don't we? People hurt you, people offend you, you say something, you do something, they say something, they do something, and it leaves an emotional hurt, a bit of an imprint on you. It might be a big hurt, might be a big offense, or it might be a little one, but when they happen, they're going to reveal what's in your heart. Now, that's a little bit different way of looking at hurts. Because we're used to saying, well, when somebody hurts us, it reveals what's in their heart. And as true as that might be, and it is, what it also reveals is what's in our hearts. How do we handle when people hurt us? How do we handle when people offend us, when people wound us? You know, I recently learned of the old Anglo-Saxon word, wrath. You've heard of that before. Somebody's wrath, somebody's ongoing anger, deep anger, emotional anger. But it has some very interesting related words. So here's what's related to the word wrath. In fact, the same word for wrath in Old English is, interestingly, the same word for wreath. Now think of a wreath where you take the pine bows and you twist them together into a circular formation. You get a wreath. Well, that's what the word wreath really means. It means to be twisted. So now we've got some insight from way back. In the 1500s, 1512 was the first time, I think, that we're about to hear the third word, but these are old words. And when there is wrath, when somebody hurts you and you get angry and it turns to wrath and you don't do anything with it, it will begin to twist you inside. And if that twisting remains long enough, that wrath, that sparks are going to fly anger that twists you into that wreath, well, when it twists you long enough, it makes you bitter. And the Bible says something about bitterness. It says it in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, or Hebrews chapter 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble by which many have become defiled. 
You see, untended wrath, I want you to really think about this because I'm going to try to capture your experiences into this because all of us have hurt people. All of us, each of us, have been hurt by people. And when that wrath begins to twist us up into a wreath, well, you got to remember there's a third word. Now, the same word for wrath and the same word for wreath is the same or is the word wraith. Now, what is a wraith, you might ask? Well, a wraith is an old word. First came into popularity in 1512. The word wraith is a ghost. What's a ghost? A ghost is something that in movies is a person that dies prematurely or unjustly, and they come into an insubstantial form, and they come out the same day, every day, at the site of their death. They cannot move on into the, the afterlife because they are still stuck in a loop at the hands of an unjust perpetrator. That's what a ghost is in modern Hollywood. See, you may recall from the movie The Lord of the Rings, the nine ring wraiths, you remember them, the Nazgul, who were once men, and they succumbed to the power of the dark Lord Sauron, and they became twisted and unrecognizable. So now we've got a really good picture of what can happen if you hurt somebody or somebody hurts you, and you store that up into anger, it becomes wrath, which will twist you like a wreath that if you don't tend to it, will get you stuck in that moment like a wraith. They're all the same words. Now, people hurt us. People in the church hurt us. We hurt people. We're a family. That's what happens. And when they do, well, we're all imperfect beings. We serve God alongside imperfect beings. And here's what we're going to actually answer. I'm going to answer three questions. What are we to do from Ephesians 4.32? Why are we to do it? And all, actually, maybe most importantly, how? How are we to do it? All right, here we go. What are we to do? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Let's all be looking at it. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now, if we're going to have the ability to live this out, you actually need to start a few verses before. So everybody, can you take your eyes and go up north a little bit to verse 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, where Paul is writing, and he's writing to the church at Ephesus. These are believers. And he says, put on the new self. Put on your recreated self, your new heart, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's what Paul means. Christian, God has recreated you. He has taken away your old self, which was enslaved to sin, which was a prisoner to sin. He's given you a new you, and that new you is actually fashioned from the raw materials of righteousness and holiness, verse 24. So if you're a Christian, 
Now, let's not assume that everybody here or online is, but if you're a Christian, then what God has done, he has taken out your old self, your old heart. He has put into you a new heart. He has recreated you, and he's fashioned you after his son, and the raw materials he has used to recreate your heart are righteousness and holiness. This is more than just having the form of righteousness and holiness. Listen, you've got to hear this. This is actually the most important thing I'm telling you so far. It's more than the form of it. It is the power to live a righteous and holy life. Now, Christian, I want you to hear this. You have the power to live a righteous, holy life. In fact, I'll take it one step further. When you sin, when I sin as a Christian, it's not because we had to. It's because we wanted to. We choose to. You can't, blame, you can't blame the devil. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your spouse. You can't blame the perfect, or the, rather the person that sinned against you. It is no one's responsibility when we sin except for our own. The source of sin is us. James Montgomery Boyce, who has gone on to be with the Lord, he's translated or summed up Ephesians chapter 24 through 32 this way. He said, act like Christians for God's sake and by God's power as well. All right, so here's what I'm saying so far. We're a family, but yet we hurt each other. We offend each other. We sin against each other. And when we do, just like we do at home, we've got to learn to be able to exercise the righteousness and holiness, the very power of God that lives in us. We're to be kind to each other, compassionate with each other, forgiving others daily, and especially difficult is the end of verse 32, or at least the middle part of it. Forgiving one another. That is so hard to do. Well, the best way we can approach this, I think, is to just try to get into this verse, all right, and let the verse get into you. So let me ask you a question. I'm gonna ask you two of them. I want you to think, if you could, who has most recently truly hurt you? I doubt anybody here cannot think of somebody. Who has most recently really hurt you? wounded you, sinned against you. All right, do you have that located in your mind? I want you to now ask the sec- answer the second question I'm gonna ask. Where are you right now with that person on the spectrum of wrath, wreath, and wraith? You're at the beginning stage where you're angry, you're hurt, It's about to turn into a root of bitterness. It's about to twist you into a wreath inside your heart. It's not there yet, but it's about to. Or are you already there, and now you're stuck? You keep replaying what they did to you, and all the time you replay it, all those emotions, that anger just builds up. It becomes a loop where it 
actually increases your wrath and twists you even more and renders you even the insubstantial form of who you used to be. You're not happy anymore. You're not full of joy anymore. You're not peaceful anymore. You're not outgoing or gregarious anymore. You've retreated into a twisted shell. Where are you on that spectrum of wrath, wreath, and wraith? Now, if you really want to answer that, then start looking at your actions and your words and your attitudes towards the person who has hurt you. Towards the person who has hurt you. Is there accusation and slander pouring out of you about the person who hurt you? Are you finding it difficult, maybe even impossible, to truly, genuinely pray for God's blessings for that person? When your mind spins freely, you know, when it's on autopilot, do you keep coming back and replaying the hurt that that person has done? Do you magnify the faults that you see in that person and meanwhile minimize their good points? Do you secretly hope for their comeuppance when justice is going to get done and they get what they deserve. That's in your heart. You've left wrath. You're on your way to a wreath and you're about to become a wraith. You know, I started ministry, my first pastor was in Marietta, Georgia at a small church and that church before I had gotten there had gone through a split. There were about 160 people when I got there, around 80, and I became their youth pastor. And my lead pastor told me a story one time of Edith Tippins. Edith Tippins was an elderly lady. She's no longer alive. Um, I got to know Edith very well. I spent time each week with her, and I got to know a lot of her story. Edith Tippins was an angry, bitter woman, had brought that anger and that bitterness lodged in her heart into this church and not unusually invested it towards Bo Gray, the lead pastor, Pastor Bo. She hated him. One time he got up to preach one Sunday and there on the pulpit was a folded letter in an envelope. It was a two-page letter that Edith had written by hand and snuck up and put it on the pulpit so that he would get it when he preached. He didn't read it then. He read it right after the sermon. And the entire letter was just bitterness pouring out of Edith Tippins to Bo Gray. Edith was full of wrath that twisted her like a wreath. And friends left her a wraith. I spent so much time with her. She would not untangle the bows of those bitter, bitter heart. Is that you? Well, there's only one way for a wraith to be set free, and that is forgiveness. That's what we are to do. Second, why are we to do it? There's only one action that can rescue a twisted wraith. It is forgiveness. But the problem is in our hearts. There is a problem in our hearts, and we all tend to fall victim to it. Now, here's what's going on when we won't forgive. I can guarantee it's going on in every single one of us every time we will not forgive, all right? I'm going to put it in a metaphor for you. I'll give you an analogy. 
Take a gas stove that has a pilot light. And that pilot light is burning in your heart the entire time. But when you think of that person, it ignites into a flame. That pilot light is what you have done wrong. That pilot light is your need of grace. But when you think and you remember and you wraith-like replay what they did against you, all of a sudden, there's a burning flame. That person's sin is so much greater than yours. See, that's always what's going on in an unforgiving heart. The way you see yourself is not nearly as terrible as the way you see the one who hurt you. We look at our own faults, and it's compared to that little pilot light, but the faults of the one who hurt us, they're like the flame of that burner, and it is on high. Yes, we think, I, I have made a mistake. I could have done that a little differently but what that person did to me is inexcusable, and I will never allow that to happen to me again. Do you see the difference between the pilot light and full on high? It's always what's going on. It's a problem in our hearts of perspective, of proportion. We minimize our faults. We magnify those of others. Look at Ephesians 4.32 again. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now look at this little two-letter word. As God in Christ forgave you. See, the words forgiving and, and forgave, they're translated from a Greek word that means to give freely. The same Greek word. It means to give freely. It means to pardon or release. And the best example for it is to cancel a debt. Now, I'm going to teach you something that I think is probably going to be for some of us a new perspective on forgiveness. And it's going to get you to the depth of the power of forgiveness. It's gonna to get to what we really need to learn to do as we live in the church together. When a financial debt is forgiven, the creditor, the one who lent the money, lets it go so that the debtor, the one who owes the money, owes it no more. That's what happens in a financial debt being forgiven. The creditor cancels the debt. And by the way, this is thoroughly biblical. You see it all the time. Look at what Deuteronomy 15 says. This is how God commands. At the end of every seventh year, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. This is how it must be done, God said. Everyone must cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. They must not demand repayment, payment from their neighbors or relatives, for the Lord's time of release has arrived. Do you know what that command was doing? Listen, you've got to get your eyes of the gospel on. You've got to see through the lens of the gospel. This was to point forward to the forgiveness that is going to be yours in Christ, because it works the same way. Now, I want you to think about this from the creditor's perspective, the one that's being owed money, the one that gave money and that is owed money. This isn't just, the creditor thinks. That's not right. 
I'm losing money. I gave that in good faith. I trusted that person to pay me back. Now I have to absorb the cost in order to cancel the debt. You see, this, this is exactly why forgiveness is so difficult. You're not only canceling a debt, you are absorbing the cost. Now, I know everybody here, I am very sure, understood that forgiveness is canceling the debt, but I know very few people understand that you have to do it by absorbing the cost. It's why it is so painful to forgive someone who hurts us so grievously. Let's put it in the relational context of forgiveness. When someone has wronged you or betrayed you or robbed you of your reputation, your innocence, your happiness, don't you have a sense of violated justice that feels like the offender is in your debt? That person owes you something. Justice needs to be served. But to forgive that person is not only to let it go, but to let it go by absorbing the cost personally. The one offended, the creditor, willingly absorbs the debt and in doing so satisfies justice. You see, every time we forgive a person who hurts us terribly, there's always a sense that it's not fair because justice won't be done. It's paid for, but you're the one, the creditor, who pays it. You're the one, the one hurt, that willingly absorbs it. Justice is done. Payment is made, but it's made by you. Do you see why this is so hard? Do you see why so many Christians, listen, so many Christians in the modern church do not live forgiving lives? No, they get upset, they get accusational, they slander, they gossip, and you know what? There's another church a block away, they get up and they leave and they find another church. It is so difficult to forgive because you've got to absorb the, the cost. And in absorbing it, you pay the justice. And friends, this is precisely how God in Christ forgave you. He absorbed the cost himself rather than demanding that we repay our moral debt, which was an, an impossible task. God, who never offended us, forgave us who have offended him by paying off our debts by the death of his own son, who went willingly to the cross to give his life that we may live. See, we are to forgive one another, Ephesians 4, 32, in the same way as God in Christ has forgiven us. We pay the perpetrator's moral debt. We absorb the cost in ourselves. And if we don't forgive, however, it, listen, you've got to hear this. If you will not forgive the evil that is done to you, the evil will pass into you. If you will not forgive the evil that is done to you, that evil will pass into you because that wrath will move and twist you like a wreath and it will render you a, a very different person like a wraith than who you were before. The heart of a church family must be a forgiving one, motivated by our forgiving God, but it leaves us with a critical, crucial question to ask, and this is the question that I'm always asking. 
All right, here's what we are to do. We are to forgive one another as Christ, God and Christ forgave us. Here's why we're to do it, because God and Christ forgave us. Don't you remember the parable in Matthew chapter 18 where there was a wealthy creditor and he brought in his debtor and the debtor could not repay the debt? You know how much that debt was in that parable? Well, it was 10,000 talents. One talent equaled 20 years of average labor. 10,000 times 20 years is 200,000 years. So that debtor owed 200,000 years worth of working days to pay off his debt. An astronomical, inconceivable, and unpayable debt. And he forgave the man and absorbed the cost in himself. So what are we to do to forgive? We are to forgive. How, why, why are we to do it? Because God in Christ has forgiven us an incalculable debt by absorbing the cost in himself and dying in our place. But how, how can we do this? Because I've taught this before, and I've been taught this before, and I've told people the parable of Matthew 18, and they get into their heads the astronomical amount, and they're still unable to go out and forgive. Why? Because it just doesn't feel right to let that person off the hook. Oh, but it feels so wrong to absorb the cost yourself. So how do we do it? Well, if we're going to answer that, then we've got to turn to 1 Samuel 22 so that I can show you what it looks like in action, and I'm going to show you what the gospel's answer is. So 1 Samuel chapter 22, let's turn our Bibles there, go to Psalms, the very middle of your Bible, and hang a left, and you'll find eventually 1 Samuel chapter 22, and we're going to look verse first at verse 2, and then we're going to fast forward to chapter 30 for the rest of our time together. You, let me give you some context. Let me tell you what's going on in 1 Samuel about this time, okay? Here we, here we go. David was a little shepherd boy, and he rose from obscurity by killing the Philistine giant Goliath. And when he did, he was elevated to an unbelievably high place in Israel. And King Saul, the king of Israel, began to be jealous because people began to sing a song, and one verse of that song went like this. David has killed his ten thousands, Saul his thousands. In other words, David's fame was outshining Saul's, and Saul became murderously jealous. Tried to kill him multiple times. And it moved David to flee into hiding, even as far away. Can you imagine this? David fled as far away as one of the five Philistine cities called Ziklag. He's living in Ziklag of the Philistines. Now, birds of a feather flock together. Out, outcasts attract outcasts. Look at chapter 22, verse 2. Everyone who was in distress. Now, watch this. And everyone who was in debt... And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. And he became commander over them. You know how many of them came to David? He became the commander of 600 outcast 
men and their wives and their children and their families. Now, you got to go all the way to chapter 30. We're going to fast forward. He's been leading his men. They're, they're living in the city of Ziklag. They go on a three-day war expedition, David and his fighting men do. And when they return, they found that a nomadic band of Amalekites, these were wicked, wicked people. They didn't have a city. They just wandered around killing people all the time. This is why God told Saul to exterminate them. They were beyond redemption. A band of Amalekites had raided their place where they were living, and they captured all of their wives and all of their children. What did David's army of outcast men, all 600 of them, do in their grief? Well, look at verse 6 of chapter 30. The people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. It won't do you any good if you cannot get into the sandals of David. You rescued these men. They came to you. You didn't go to them. You've been leading them. You've been providing for them. You've been keeping them safe. You've been loving them and their wives and their children. And when something goes wrong, all of a sudden, the bitterness that has lodged in their hearts, their twisted wraith-like hearts, began to swing over to David. Maybe we should stone him to death. David goes to the Lord and prays, and God assured him, go after your wives and your children. You're going to rescue every one of them. And so they go in pursuit. 200 of his 600 men were exhausted. They fall down. They cannot go any further. He leaves those 200. He and the 400 go on. They find the Amalekites. They rescue their families. Look at verse 18. They recovered all that the Amalekites had done, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoiler anything that had been taken David brought back all and the people drove the livestock before him and said this is David's spoil this is the wage that belongs to David the man whom a moment ago a moment before they wanted to stone now he leads them to victory they get their families back now they're giving him their spoil And on their return, when they regathered with the 200 exhausted men, the 200 men who could not go, could not fight with them, they were too exhausted, came out to meet them and listen to what this band of outcasts says. All the wicked, verse 22, and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his life and children and depart. Get out of here. We don't want you around here. You don't get anything other than your lives. But David's a man after God's own heart. 
And in Acts 13, that means he did all the will of God. And he said to angry, these angry, bitter men, 400 of them, he says these words, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us, who would listen to you in this matter. For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. Do you see what he's saying? The 200 men who did not join the battle will get an equal share. That means they will get David's share. He gave up his share. He absorbed the cost so that even those 200 who did not battle, who were too exhausted, would not miss the blessing. Now, you've got to be asking, at least I think you should be, how could David forgive like this? Here's a group of men who wanted to kill him. Here's a group of men that owed everything to him. They were outcasts. He took them in. He gave them a family. And they turned on him. And they wanted to stone him. The secret is found in verse 6, and here is the gospel. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Do you understand what that means? It means that the life of God poured into David and gave him the want to to do what he ought to. See, if you walk out of here after this message and you can locate somebody on that spectrum of wrath to wreath to wraith and you know, yep, I've got to forgive. I know the Lord's been telling me that and that sermon, that just zinged right into my heart. I've got to do it. I'm just going to buckle down and I'm going to say the words, I forgive you. And the next time you see them, I'll tell you what's going to happen. All of that hurt, all of that bitterness, all of that unjust wrath, you will find came right back up to the surface so fast. See, it's not just saying the words, I forgive you. Try it. <laughs> Try it. Just say it, I forgive you, and see what happens the next time you see them. You'll go right back into that loop like a needle on a record player stuck in a groove. It'll come right back. It's not just saying the words. Listen, the, the life of God, the life of Jesus must pour into your heart so that you love that person, so that you want to release that person, so that you want to cancel their debt. Listen, and so that you're willing to absorb the cost, and in absorbing it, you pay for the justice of the one who hurt you. That's gospel forgiveness, and that's what God did for us. You've got to be with the Lord. You've got to be strengthened in the Lord your God. 
And when you abide with him and you dwell with him and he is in you and you are in him, there is a transaction of power that occurs. His life, his love, his forgiveness, his kindness, his tenderness pours into your heart and begins to transform you into righteousness and holiness. And all of a sudden, forgiveness is not something you've got to knuckle drag and try with all your might to do. Listen, forgiveness will be something you want to do because it's not your power anymore. It's the power of God. You see, the gospel message really is this. The finished work of Christ produces the ongoing life of Christ and the faithful followers of Christ. The finished work of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection produces the ongoing life of Christ into the hearts of his faithful followers. That's the gospel. You see, I could have sent you out of here if I was going to be a terrible, horrible preacher and said, now you know what you are to do. Be kind, be tenderhearted, and forgive one another. Now go do it. And you know what? I would have doomed you to failure you would not have been successful. Because that's not the gospel. That's moral persuasion. That's moralism. Here's what you are to do now. Go figure it out. Go find a way to do it. The gospel won't do that to you. The gospel's full of love and grace and mercy. The gospel says this, all the power you need to do, to do, to do all that God is going to ask you to do is bound up in the life of Christ being infused in you as you walk with him and abide with him and love him and delight in him. Because when you delight in him, he will give you the desires of your heart. Where are you on that spectrum? And I'm only a minute from being done. The spectrum of wrath to a twisted wreath to a ghost-like wraith. Replaying over and over the hurt that was done to you inescapably. Where are you? Be honest. The only power that can rescue you from that is the gospel. Verse 24 of Ephesians 4, you're a new creation. You've been infused and you're being poured into as you abide in Christ with righteousness and holiness. Therefore, be kind. That's the answer to wrath. Be tenderhearted. That's the answer to a wreath. And forgive one another. That's the answer to a wraith. That's the gospel. And that's the heart of a family of God. We must learn this. We must forgive. Even as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven us. Amen? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something a little bit different, and I don't know where any of you are, to be honest with you. I know where I'm at, but I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are on that spectrum. But I know this. John MacArthur once said that forgiving someone who has hurt you is the most godlike thing you will ever do. Because you're canceling their debt and absorbing their cost. There's really nothing you could do that's more godlike. Is there somebody 
that you need to forgive and you've not yet been willing to do it. Somebody that's hurt you deeply. And maybe you thought you forgave them, but tonight's, this message brought it back up. You really didn't. I'm gonna ask you to do something while they play some music up top. I'm gonna give them a second to get that going. Just instrumental, no words, but I just want you to reflect. And let's be, let's be honest. Let's be real with each other. If there's somebody that's hurt you and you have not forgiven them, friends, I'm telling you, you will go from wrath to a wraith by becoming a twisted wreath. You really will. And you must not let that happen. So let me pray and let me let you think about that. And if that's where you are tonight, if you are not forgiving of someone, I'm gonna ask you to right where you are, stand up. Not to put you on public display of shame. That's not it. That's to firm up your resolve that you will ask God to strengthen your heart. And I will pray for you then. Let me pray first to let you reflect. Father, I thank you, Lord, as we are coming towards the close of a service. Father, I pray that you would show us our hearts. Father, I'm convinced our church, surprisingly, does not forgive well. I didn't know that. But Lord, I'm seeing it. And I'm not outside of this church speaking as one who has perfected forgiving. I'm in need of this as well. We must learn to be kind with one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. We must learn it. Because just like David said to his 400 men that did not want to give any of the spoiled to the 200, just what David said to them, they're going to lose their witness. People will hear about this. And they're going to lose their credibility with the nations around them. People will not see their God in them. And it's the same for us. If we will not forgive, we will lose our witness. Father, it's critical that we learn to be kind with one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave us. Lord, that we do away with wrath. That we let you straighten up our twisted hearts. That you restore us to the new selves that are created and infused with righteousness and holiness. Lord, we need your power to work in us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.